Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. In this episode, we caught up with the wonderful Barbara Spanton from Ottawa and Canada. Barbara is a UX lead in Shopify. And in this episode, Barbara is joined by Amon Brack, Principal Designer for Intuit Australia and Mark Tanzariti, who is also a co-host. We discuss the industry's obsession with the redesign. Very, very interesting stuff. But before we jump in, however, as this podcast is recorded in the Sydney CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today, and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who might be listening in today. Also on this episode, we have a giveaway, a 40 euro voucher from MrThinker.com. Mr. Thinker is an online shop specialized in tools for service designers and design thinkers. To be in with the chance of winning the 40 euro voucher, all you have to do is email in the keyword blueprint to jerry at humana.design. That's G-E-R-R-Y at humana, H-U-M-A-N-A dot design. The first person in gets to win the gift voucher. So let's jump straight into this episode. Okay, so we've got Barbara Spanton on the, the show. And Barbara, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Barbara, let's let's kick off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your involvement with human-centered design. Sure. So my involvement with human-centered design, I think, started long before we were calling it that. I started off in industrial design more than half a lifetime ago. And I was in Ottawa, which at the time, uh, in Ottawa, Canada, would be... Um, Nobody besides us, but we called that Silicon Valley North. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually, and still is, quite a a hotbed of uh, high tech long before other parts of the country caught up. So as I was coming out of industrial design, ready to enter the workforce, I kind of had these options to, to go work in, you know, your typical product design agencies and so on, or these really cool things I could do in the world of software. And it was just incredible to sort of dabble in that field at that point, sort of to, to enter this field where there were no precedents and kind of just figure out, you know, how the mm. heck would we design, you know, email for mobile phones back in the late 90s. And it was just incredible to be in this world that was just emerging and had no precedents. And I was kind of forging the way as we went. Okay. So yeah, I kind of went all in and I haven't looked back. So I currently work at Shopify. I'm a UX lead on one of the teams there. Excellent. I've been there for just under a year. Oh, brilliant. So also on the show this week, we've got Aman Brack. So Aman, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey there. Like as Jerry mentioned, I'm, I'm with Intuit. To those of you probably in the US, you're probably familiar with who Intuit is, a huge company over there, but I'm helping them build their brand over here in Australia. What they do is they, they help individuals and small businesses with financial health and prosperity and, and, and building out their businesses and operations themselves. So they're helping them tackle those those issues that they have to deal with with coming into an Australian market. All right. Cool. So Aman, Barbara, thanks for joining us. So let's start off the discussion today. Like I know I was speaking to Barbara. We actually met at UX Scotland this year. It was one of my highlights meeting Barbara. <laughs> oh, thanks. You're one of my highlights <laughs> too. So... Today's topic is about disposable design. So, Barbara, maybe tell us a little bit about what you what you want to discuss about disposable design. Sure. So, this is a topic I've been kind of working my way around in the last couple of months around this this sort of urge we have to just throw everything out and redesign things from scratch. And I sort of started on this rant over the Christmas holidays last year when I was trying to replace a light bulb in my microwave oven. And despite, I won't tell you how many hours, how many different screwdrivers, how many trips to the hardware store, I actually couldn't do it. I had to replace the damn thing because you're not supposed to replace the bulb. You're supposed to replace the whole microwave oven. I think that's, you know, we we sort of 
scowl at other products that do that in our physical world. And then we go ahead and do that with our own projects. We kind of approach a problem. We're like, ah, why replace the light bulb? We'll just, you know, gut the whole thing and replace it. And so I started watching how often I do that in my own work and why we do that and how to maybe stop doing that and what opportunities exist if we spend less time redesigning and throwing out perfectly good things. No, like I've noticed it's it's a big problem in my life. Like, and I've definitely stopped over the last maybe five, 10 years, I've become a lot more aware. And I think as industrial designers, as we discussed before we come on the show today, as industrial designers, we're, we're primed and we're modeled to be creating products. And at some point in your career, you probably stop and say, well, what, what are we doing? Are we going to just put all this stuff into a landfill in the future? So what can we do to prevent this from happening? Like, why should businesses care? Yeah, so I think there's some really, really obvious and smart reasons to care. There's a huge cost to being overzealous in sort of throwing out entire existing systems and redesigning them. There's the obvious time and resources that teams spend replacing a perfectly adequate thing, reimagining it, rethinking it, rebuilding it. Mm. That effort itself is a huge waste. I think we also have to think about the people who are going to be using it and the lost productivity on their end, right? Like they've got to learn to use this whole new thing, probably change their habits. We've probably asked them to change their mental models and flip things around on them, you know, because it's better, right? Mm. So what's the loss in productivity to them? Are we actually doing more harm than good? But I think the, the biggest reason is I think that the missed opportunity to solve real new bigger challenges instead of just iterating on ones that are kind of solved already. Mm. So I think those are probably from a business perspective, three of the huge reasons why we've got to be a lot more careful about what we're spending our time on. I know well, what I'm really keen to understand about how this would change the day-to-day workings of a typical design software project. So if we were to take disposable design into consideration into the digital realm, why would designers care and why would businesses care about disposable design? Yeah, so I think it does. I think there are so many projects or goals that we might kind of put off because we just don't have the bandwidth. I mean, no matter how big a company you're in, which is a bit ridiculous, and we're, you know, putting off something because we don't have the bandwidth for it, right? But then we end up finding the time to and the resources to update or revisit or reimagine an existing thing. And I think it's because it's there's something appealing about the well-scoped problem that we already understand. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like this opportunity to go back and fix the things you did wrong. We're really drawn to that. But also it's this, I don't know, reason to not do that bigger, harder thing that we keep sort of pushing off because we don't have the bandwidth, right? And so if we, you know, if we just said, let's not fix these things for a little while and let's just spend all of our time on these big items that we're a lot more reluctant and afraid to tackle, how far could we get on those? What could we be doing? What changes could we be making, right? Yeah. This year at UX Australia, we were lucky enough to have Mike Montero. You were Mike Montero in Canada? Yeah, yeah. He's an absolute weapon. I think we stage. actually, we can still hear him up here sometimes when he's talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt him in my head and in my heart at the same time. He was yeah. a bit of a revelation. He's very, you know, in your face, which which was great. But he made a huge impact and on stage by saying about, like, we are the gatekeepers for the corporate cultures. Like, we don't have to do that work. It's, it falls back onto the, the responsibility of the designer to say no. And that's something that often gets lost, especially in the junior, mid, senior level in, in organizations where they they're kind of feel like they, they're told they have to do that. So I think in regards to what you're saying about disposable design, it definitely resonates with Mike Montero's 
mantra, how would someone at that level, what advice could you give them to, to go back to their, their superiors and say, actually, maybe we should do it this way? So I think a big thing that could guide practitioners at any level when approaching this kind of work is just asking ourselves, well, you know, what, what are we fixing, right? Mm. And is this something, first of all, that is a big enough problem to fix? Mm. Are we doing this because, you know, it's it's been three years and, oh man, purple's not the thing anymore? Are we doing this because somebody never liked how we implemented it in the first place, but it's actually been working kind of okay? Or are we avoiding a perfectly good solution because there's some kind of stigma around it because something that happened with that project that's kind of the other side mm. that i find get comes up very often where you know you you look at a way of solving something and everyone's like oh yeah yeah we already did that but it didn't work right and so i think just asking yourselves a bit more often being super clear on what is the impact of the work that we're doing asking ourselves what we're actually going to achieve if mm-hmm. we do as well as we possibly could with the work that we've scoped out for ourselves yeah. and what are we not doing if we choose to do this and that's the big part right okay so it's it's, it's almost like adding an extra metric to like the, the opportunity success of, of yeah. doing this thing right that's really interesting so like maybe something like sustainability could be added to the metrics for success for a project well i don't know if it's sustainability it's like what are we not doing if we do this thing right hmm. So sure, let's make sure that there's value to what we're doing and there's impact and it's worth our time and effort. But what is the other thing that we're not doing? And what would the impact of that be? And often it's harder to to sort of define that and pin that down, which is why it's easier to zero in on the familiar, right? So we kind of shy away from the unfamiliar because how can I define the impact of a thing that I've never, you know, even scoped or worked or or, or worked on before, right? So then we kind of come back to the familiar and say, well, I can make this thing better and we can measure that and we can track that. You know, maybe that's it. This obsession we have with metrics, right? Yeah. I can show that this is better than it was yesterday. Okay. So how would you apply that to your day-to-day or your next project in Shopify? So what are you going to do different now that we're, we're it's in our consciousness? I mean, it's easy to say, you know, look at all the things you possibly could do, which is completely impossible because there are so yeah. many things we could do. But I think it's uh, when we often kind of put these sort of pie in the sky, wouldn't it be nice if ideas sort of neatly back on the shelf because that's just, you know, not in scope or not achievable or whatever. I think those are the things that should not be going back on the shelf, right? Kind of the those sort of future ideas that, oh, it would be great if we could fix this big, challenging, messy problem or fix a certain flow that's clearly broken, but we keep kind of shying away from it, right? So I think it's figuring out what... See, but that's not, I'm not, not even making sense there, right? Because I think... The things that we could be working on are things that we haven't even given ourselves time to think about, right? Because we're yeah. kind of zeroing in on the familiar, right? So how do you, maybe I don't have an answer. How do maybe, we? Maybe it just changes your mindset. So if you've yeah. got a different mindset, it opens up how you apply things to a new ideas framework versus if you get your new ideas framework with a much more broader mind, it allows you to work on more meaningful things in the BAU. Mm-hmm. When it comes to tackling a project like this, with all this this methodology, is there anything that you need to consider when it comes to BAU, so actually operating on this project at the very end? Is there something that needs to come into mind earlier on about sustainability or do you have to change the way you work or something that you need to consider to actually make this work in the long run? Maybe it comes down to, or one of the elements might be around being a bit more granular at what where we focus our time and our efforts, right? So mm-hmm. as you look at a body of work, finding all the things that still work and that are still good and that you can totally hang on to and that people wish you would just hang on to and leave mm-hmm. them as they are, right? Maybe being a bit more conscious about what what can be left as is. 
And yeah. then, do you think it's more less about the the project and the deliveries and that methodology, and more about the mindset? That's what I'm hearing. It's it's less about the companies and it's more about the individual designers' mindset. Where right. we're adding that. Yeah, I think so. Because I'm not really hearing any kind of methodology coming out here, right? I really mm-hmm. think it is about the mindset and keeping, you know, finding what's good, keeping what's good, preserving that and letting it live its its full life, whatever that might be. Finding ways to sort of patch up existing things that are good with new parts that need to be incorporated. And it's really hard to make those things fit together, but maybe it's worth it. Yeah. Maybe it's worth trying to make these sort of mismatched pieces come together in a good way. So if it is about the designer's mindset, what can we do better as an industry to, to raise the awareness? Any ideas? And that goes open to the group. I mean, it's, it's definitely a difficult one that like businesses in general do move this themselves. Like when we get a lot of traction and stuff with design, it's because it gets brought in by senior business leaders and then you actually get to apply it to a product and then you get it live and it gets to go out there with the users. So yeah. the difficult thing, well, I think the challenge really is, is winning this over with senior stakeholders and management and leadership because as soon as they pick up onto it, you can start to get it down to market faster and more effectively. But I think that's the that's the real battle that always needs to be won with, with design and mindsets and actually getting it live into a product is making sure you take people on the journey with you. Yeah, absolutely. And it, as much as we'd love to think that designers are going to rule the world, the board and the C-level still have to see the bottom line. So it's it's educating top and bottom to be aware of the impacts of redesigns. Is that fair to say? I think so. But I think they're also the ones that are often most attracted to the redesign, right? Because mm-hmm. it's something it's something tangible that you can put your finger on and you can imagine before going down that path where you will end up. Mm. which by definition makes it maybe less worthwhile a project. If you know you're going to and where you're going to end up and it's probably not that far from what you have right now, maybe that's, you know, a bit of a sign that it's not necessarily worth it, right? But I think that's 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 part of what often happens. You'll get a lot of buy-in for a refresh of an existing thing because the existing thing is trusted and it's, you know, it's been proven it works. Is it fair to say that I guess what you're kind of getting at is that the redesign is sexy and, you know, the C-level thinks it's sexy, like this is something that they can hang their hat on, put their fingerprint on, whereas maybe it's better off to just focus on what the actual problems are. So if something's really hard to do but you know that it's causing a problem, focus on that rather than kind of repacking and packaging it up and then still having the same problem even though you've got a shiny new website. Is that... Exactly. I think what, what we often end up doing with sort of a, a refresh or a redesign or an overhaul is we just repackage the same problems into, mm. an, into a new package, right? right? And often the motivation behind doing these things are, are kind of shallow, right? Like, oh, it's, it's been done, it's dated, you might as well replace the whole thing. That's the kind of thing you hear. And those efforts, yeah, it's almost like we just carry over the same problems and present them in this year's style. Right. And I mean, redesigns often encompass a hell of a lot more than just visuals. So I'm not trying to suggest that it's always sort of an aesthetic thing. Mm. But even if we, you know, do a redesign and we restructure workflows to whatever, you know, the the way we think of this work right now. Yeah. How how do we find out if we're actually making it better? How do we find out if efficiencies are gained? What I'm hearing is that there's no actual negative impact to the success of the delivery of, of a project with this mindset. It's more around the the collective use of our time to be working on things that are worthwhile. Yeah, and sort of asking ourselves why why are we working on this? 
So should we all just go and work for, for companies that tend to work on social good, you know, and, and avoid working well, sure, on... sure, that's easy to say, right? But yeah. I think, so I, I mean, it's funny because as I was deciding whether to go work, work at Shopify or not, I'm like, really, commerce, shopping, is this a thing I, this? I really care all that much <laughs> about? No, I'm, 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 well, so I'm, go for it. Because that's kind of where I was uh, as, mm-hmm. I, as I was thinking about taking the job. But then you look at a company which seems on the surface to be dealing with things like shopping and commerce that maybe I really don't care that much about. But just beneath that, you have this layer of this entrepreneur. This is this person who has left their nine to five job that they hated, or maybe it's not a nine to five. Maybe it's something that kept them away from their families or kids or whatever. Mm. And they're trying to make a living out of their passion. They're trying to make a life for themselves. They're trying to do something. They're trying to give me an alternative from going to Walmart to buy, you know, mass produced junk. They're trying to give, they're trying to make a life for themselves and provide some kind of a, a product that they really believe people need, right? And when you hear stories of these entrepreneurs who are trying to make something of their lives, I don't see how that's really all that far from like working in some kind of, you know, social good. I feel like I'm helping these people who Absolutely. legitimately want to make their lives different and make the world different for other people. Absolutely. It's funny you should mention that because that's actually a lot of the same reasons as to why I joined Intuit to help out these small businesses is that in a lot of these cases, you've got these people like risking everything to go and pursue their passion. And you just want to do absolutely everything to support them along that journey. And and one of the, the great things I saw coming out of Shopify itself, you guys did this amazing piece around, uh, I think it was called like 150 Canada or something along those lines where you actually highlighted yeah. certain businesses that have really like risked it all and then gone out there and, and really made, made this thing their own in, in commerce, as you mentioned. But it's a really powerful and passionate story because yeah, of the, the story the it tells by, of the business itself. Yeah, the Built by Entrepreneurs, I think it was. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, I got goosebumps watching it, right? Yeah, that's incredible. So many stories, you know, behind every merchant, there's this story that on the surface sounds, you know, pretty simple, but then you actually get into the details and their stories are amazing. And these are people for who I, I think I am doing a lot of social good, right? Absolutely. Um, so no, to answer your question, Jerry, I don't think, you know, we all quit our jobs and, and do that. But I think we apply that kind of mentality to the work that we do, right? It's not about how do I make this person more money, although in many cases, that's one of the metrics people are worrying about. But mm-hmm. how do I take the crap, you know, out of the way so that they can focus on what really drives them? Right? Yeah. And that goes back to the last podcast about the culture and the importance of good leadership to foster that type of thinking. And I know the statement I was by devil's advocate when it said that should we all just quit our jobs, because I know that's what people will be thinking. But I totally agree with you. And in Shopify's example, I, I believe they're creating tools to enable the betterment of, you know, the husband and wife who are living in rural New South Wales and rural Canada mm-hmm. to, to be able to make a living. So let's go back and let's think about a little bit about the, the impacts. If you don't have this mindset, what it might look like in an organization. Do you have any examples of anything like that? Yeah. So a number of years ago, I, I was brought in to work on this redesign, as people like to frame it, of this central bank software. So there's people, if you've ever been in a central bank, that that was my first time, there's people Mm. who are basically locked in these rooms, counting out like stacks of money, and they can't leave the room until everything's accounted for because they can't be trusted, apparently. And so they have this software where they sort of enter every single, all these, you know, measures of, you know, whether it's a stack or a bag, or they have all these words that I had to learn. But essentially, you're counting money and saying how much money you had, how much money there is before you enter the room, after you enter the room, and money gets moved around this giant, enormous building. 
And so this product, as we were looking at it, broke every single rule that we as designers would, you know, think about. Like every heuristic was broken in this thing, right? I mean, you looked at these screens, there was absolutely nothing parsable about them. Like you'd look in all the contents, completely impossible to understand at a glance. The density was insane. The the actual targets of these things that you had to click on were totally tiny. It's this super step-by-step process, you know, God forbid you were a click counter, you would have gone completely crazy. And so we're just thinking, this is easy, you know, like we can fix this thing, we can only make it better, you know, anything we do is better than what these four people are dealing with right now. And so we, you know, we luckily we had lots of research planned, but we do a bunch of redesigning and we, you know, create this whole information architecture that makes tons of sense and we simplify these screens and blah, blah, blah. And what we hadn't realized going in was what this horribly complicated and messy and dense interface was providing that we essentially tried to strip out of it. And it was it was a very sort of physical manual work that these people did. They never actually even looked at the screen, you know? That screen was not for looking at. It was kind of if something happened to go wrong and, you know, I didn't hit the tab key the right number of times. And that never happens because the rhythm these people are in where they just sort of tap, 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 knowing which cell they're in. They're just basically using their tab key and their their keypad with the numbers. They don't even look at the screen. The screen is basically there kind of as a almost like a ticker tape to sort of work their way back had they made a mistake, right? So here, as we were trying to make this thing, you know, easy to understand at a glance and, you know, be able to actually have large enough targets for you to be able to click on them, they're looking at us as they were the biggest idiots in the world. Because if you have to pull your mouse out, that's like a huge hassle, right? And so Mm. they had this very sort of tactile way of working with this product that we basically would have everything in this told us to break it, right? And so, I mean, this you could look at sort of your typical project of, oh, just do your research and make sure you don't, you know, make decisions that harm the product and make it worse than it used to be. Mm. But I think our instinct of what we evaluated as being bad and worthy of redesign were completely off, right? And so the sorts of things we ended up changing were actually almost nothing. We ended up creating really good reports that people could look at. (laughs) People who were not in this room, who were not using the product. And that was actually what the need was, right? So the person who said, hey, I can't understand these screens when I look at them, that was true, right? This person could not understand the screens when they looked at them. But that was a completely separate need, right? So creating great reporting for these products so they could sort of live observe what's happening in this room, summarize shifts, how people's productivity is going on. Mm -hmm. That was the actual thing that we needed to solve, right? And we're able to leave everything as is for these people who, quite frankly, were happy with what they had. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, Alan has got a question he wants to feed in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to that point is that, like, I remember someone telling me this story as well about how it was about getting people out in the country or rural areas cochlear um, implants. Yeah. I remember, like, I can't remember the name of the company that went to for it but what happened was they wanted to build like this really sexy app essentially like like a lot of companies did at the time but the reality was what they needed was like people to actually go out to the country and inform people on how cochlear implants actually work like uh, with little pamphlets and people actually driving out to people's houses to do it but the company itself didn't really buy into the fact because it wasn't like this this sexy app that was supposed to be designed they like they actually completely ignored the problem itself because they wanted to kind of do the whole redesign process and kind of jump on this wave Well, and that's just it, because often these things stem from a legitimate need. Like the legitimate need in your case, as you're describing, is communicating and spreading awareness, right? And there are many ways to do that. 
a sexy app is one of those ways. It may or may not be appropriate, right? The problem that I was legitimately trying to solve was how can this manager understand what's happening in the room that he's supervising or she's supervising, right? And sure, we could change everything for the people doing the work so that the manager can glance at their screen and understand, or we could just create a separate thing for this manager, right? So I think that's part of it, right? When you go and sort of identify the problem, and I think we're for the most part pretty good at that, it's perfectly okay to say, hey, the thing we thought we had to fix is not the thing we have to fix. And it's okay to leave this thing as is or figure out what, we, what can be left alone, right? Yeah. I think that's what we don't do enough. Barbara, what's the uh, one professional skill you wish you were better at? So I'm a giant hypocrite because I really suck at follow through. It's sort of been a long time problem for me. I'm really great at starting and prioritizing, planning and scoping and all that stuff. And for a long time, I've kind of hidden behind this like, ooh, I'm not a details person excuse, right? But what this means is that I don't really finish things very well. And the most horrible way to be wasteful and not sustainable in design is just by not finishing stuff in the first place. It's just completely unfair to, to my teams, to users of my products. I think that's, that's something I, I just cannot... I, I can't do this anymore, you know? And as I'm listening to myself, you know, wasting time, being efficient, having an impact, you know, leaving a whole pile of half-baked stuff is not a good way of having an impact. So I think that's that's a big one I got to get better at. So the second question would be, what's one thing in the industry you wish you were able to banish? Assholes with superiority complexes. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone specific that you'd like to call out? <laughs> no, 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 I don't think we need to do that. But just the egos, the know-it-alls, this kind of sense that anyone in our industry knows it all. And usually that I find the people who have these kinds of qualities, they tend to attract fans who kind of idolize them and it kind of makes it even worse. And I just think we all need to ditch our superiority complexes and be a lot more humble. Okay. So this might apply to the next question. What is the uh, message that you give to an emerging HCD talent for the future? Well, so that would be a good one. Be humble, I guess. (laughs) I think One thing I find emerging young people in the industry tend to obsess over a bit too much is finding sort of the right tools, the right process, the right methodology. And there's kind of this obsession with, am I doing things, you know, am I following the right approach? Mm. And that sort of assumes that there is one approach, that there is one right tool, that there is one right methodology, which I've found to be just completely not true. What I think you're, you're better off doing is trying on all the different tools and processes and methodologies that you possibly can copy people learn from people and as you try more and more different ways of approaching things different tools different strategies you'll be better at assessing when one is working and when it's not and then you can switch to a different one so yeah i think the just try all the things and you'll be good enough at using all of them is probably something just do it and (laughs) see how it works yeah like just develop your intuition because that's the tool that'll always be reliable for you So, Barbara, thanks for being on the podcast. And Amon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. I hope you found that conversation helpful. We'd love to get your feedback or thoughts on this topic. So to join in in the conversation, go to thisishcd.com and register to join for our Slack channel, where you can get in touch with Barbara herself or myself or Mark or Amon. We use the Slack channel to also help shape future episodes of the podcast, as well as share interesting design-related content every single day. We've also started a book review section and are actively looking for people to review design books. So if you've read a book recently, uh, join up and tell us a little bit about it. Uh, We'd love to potentially include your review in future podcasts. We're also actively looking for sponsorship for the podcast, with 100% of the money raised going directly to Cara Care, an incredible NGO who helps support children who've suffered child abuse. 
We also donate by you can or you can also donate by clicking on the dollar sign in the media player on the thisishcity.com website. So see you again soon.